I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome to the Healing at the Edge podcast. This is Dale Borglum, also known as Ramdave, and today I'm so happy to be with a new dear friend of mine, Elena Bouchalate from Milano, Italy. I said that almost right. I can tell that she's laughing a little bit at my Italian. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and uh, I teach this online workshop where people from around the world take this online class and then there is ongoing live support. And through that, I met Elena, who has become a Living Dying Project adjunct volunteer. We have volunteers in Australia and Denmark and Italy and Canada and all around the United States, other places, who are trained to offer spiritual support to dying people. Uh, I will say that lately one of my main interests in areas of spiritual investigation is Tantra. Uh, there are very many different schools of Tantra. The two main ones, of course, are Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana Tantra and Hindu Tantra, uh, mostly originating from the Kashmir Shaivite tradition. And 
they look at Tantra in very different ways. In Hindu Tantra, the female quality, the Shakti, is the dynamic force, whereas the male force is the more passive, formless, unmanifest, whereas in Tibetan Tantra, it's the other way around. I think those differences are really cultural and not particularly important. But uh, I'm interested in Tantra because, first of all, Tantra literally means to weave. And the way I look at that is that we're weaving this quality of the sacred or the divine into our everyday life. Uh, Tantra is not a school that promotes renunciation. Advaita Vedanta, some schools of non-duality, say that the world is an illusion. We don't need to be bothered by it. We can just become detached, uh, rest in this non-dual detachment, and we will then move toward awakening and enlightenment. Whereas Tantra says that the world is real, but it is internal to consciousness. That, that, that the world is a manifestation of the divine sacred energy. And consequently, I am that and you are that. <coughs> Excuse me, you are that. And all other people are that. So that in Tantra, uh, it's not about getting away from the world, but seeing the divine in all other people. So, Elena, do you have any, any comments you'd like to make about that? I very much love this approach because uh, it allows me to see the, the beauty in people because if I think they are the, an expression of the divine consciousness, it's more easy to see them in a wide way, <laughs> let's say. And um, yes, I like it very much. You know, I probably should have asked you to introduce yourself a little bit. I know that you're a yoga teacher. Do you want to say anything else about what you do there in northern Italy? Yes, I also have a job in the Chamber of Commerce, but I uh, very much feel my call to be a yoga teacher because I like to research and I like to uh, stay with people also and to share what the yoga has brought into my life. And uh, I teach Anusara Yoga, that is born in America uh, in the 70s. Uh, and uh, it is based on the Kashmir Shivaism. The philosophical uh, foundations are the Kashmir Shivaism. So we studied a bit because you could spend life studying them, but a bit we studied the tantric text. And am I right in assuming you have some affection for Maharaji? Yes. <laughs> I knew him through Krishna Das because, ah. of course, as a yoga teacher, uh, I listened to Kirtans and uh, I love them very much. And then through Krishna Das, I knew uh, Ram Das uh, and then you. <laughs> so I have to thank Maharaji for a lot of good uh, uh, people in my life. If, even if I, I know you better than from that and Krishna that because I have only heard uh, CDs and music and uh, listened to podcasts from Ramdas while I had the privilege to follow your course online. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that. I find it really fascinating, and you, you probably know that I'm a recovering scientist. I have an uh, advanced degree in mathematics. 
And I find it fascinating that modern quantum mechanics, modern research, is showing what tantric wisdom knew thousands of years ago. And what they have proven lately, these scientists, I have references, but I don't think there's any need to give these scientific uh, references, is that the, the reality cannot be both objective and separable at the same time. And in fact, it's highly pro probable that it's neither of those. And by objective, it's saying that there is a reality that is independent of observation, that if you're not looking at it, there's this independent, solid reality out there. And separable means that we can act on something and it doesn't affect something else arbitrarily far away. So that our worldview is that the world, that reality is both of those things. There's an objective reality and I can say something to you right now and it doesn't affect uh, something inside of a closed box in Timbuktu or something like that. But that uh, basically reality cannot be both of those things. So that from the standpoint of the ego, we assume, the ego assumes that we're the center of experience, we're the subject, and that the solid reality is out there and we're receiving it. And in this receiving, uh, through our senses and through our mind, we are understanding reality. Whereas what Tantra is saying, what quantum mechanics is saying, is that there isn't an outside, objective, separable reality. Uh, that in fact, reality is a function of consciousness uh, the brain is a function of the mind, not the other way around, so that the medical model is completely backwards also. And consequently, that experience is flowing out through us. And that even though it's real, it's real in the sense that it's a function of consciousness. So that if you have a refrigerator in your house and you can't see it right now because you're in the living room and the refrigerator's in the kitchen, in some sense, the refrigerator doesn't exist until you go into the kitchen and look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, to me, that's fascinating because if, if I'm really feeling that I'm creating experience in a certain way, that, first of all, that's kind of dangerous because the notion is I'm God and everything's God and I'm creating this. But if this is just a mental concept, if it's just in our minds, uh, there are people who can get caught in that I am God thing and make a lot of big mistakes. That the Tantra is learning to practice that this, this, this consciousness is flowing through us, that it's a direct living experience, not an intellectual understanding. So what you and I are talking about now is the intellectual understanding that's the map to direct experience. Tantra is about direct living experience, not really about philosophical understanding. But if, in fact, we have this view or we're uh, cultivating this view, then to me, it's very, uh, it, it creates a deep sense of faith and trust and comfort that uh, there's not some 
hard, fast reality out there that I'm sort of at the mercy of, but that it's consciousness flowing through me into the point that I can uh, rest in that. There's a great ease, a great sense of devotion and relationship to the divine that I'm experiencing. And, and I think that we can see also in a pragmatic way, because, you know, when you are used to complain a lot, you will find many things to complain about. So where you put your attention, uh, you make it grow. So you create your reality in, uh, in some way. Uh, and you can uh, really create a, a, a vision for yourself. And you find what you search. <laughs> So it's very important to choose carefully, to be conscious about what you put your attention on. Uh, and it's like to have superpowers. We create reality by putting attention on, on things. So if you're looking for a connection, I think uh, you can find connection with people. It also seems kind of dangerous, though, that people can misunderstand this teaching and think it's just about creating wealth or power in the world. And uh, traditionally, Tantra is not really taught until one has done a lot of work in cultivating awareness and opening the heart. The, the Tantra, uh, for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, is only taught the empowerment stage is only taught after one has done uh, very intensive practice in cultivating a clear awareness, particularly of how suffering arises and uh, the sense that there is no solid self, and uh, deeply cultivating a sense of bodhicitta or compassion, awakening heart. So that without love and compassion, this notion that it's all divine and I'm creating reality in a certain way, uh, I think can be very dangerous. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of qualified tantric teachers here in the West. Uh, I guess maybe you found one uh, that you've, you feel very comfortable with. I, I don't really know any tantric teachers here in America right now, but I haven't been looking, I guess. I know a very good tantric uh, teacher that is Carlos Pomeda. That is from the USA, I guess. Um, what is his, his or her name? Carlos Pomeda. Oh. He is uh, from Spanish origins, but I know that he lives in the USA. Okay. You know, when you hold your microphone up like that, it works a lot better, I think. Okay. So I use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're okay. much better sound better. quality. Thank okay. you. Okay. So Carlos is very, very good. He was a monk. Uh, Saraswati order monk, so he studied Tantra a lot. Okay. So, let me think here. So, my Guru Maharaji said, uh, see all women as the mother. Uh, when I came to him and said, how should I meditate? I thought he'd give me some wonderful advice and say, focus on your third eye and think about me or some wonderful Hindu meditation. And he said, see a woman as the mother and you'll be able to meditate. And in a way, that's really a tantric teaching. Uh, instead of objectifying women or 
objectifying people or objectifying reality, if we see it all as the mother, uh, then his, his advice to me at least was that then I would be meditating already. And uh, is it possible to see it all as the mother, all thought, all energy, all matter? Can we see the current political situation in America as a manifestation of the mother? Can we see cancer as a manifestation of the mother? And I think to do that, it's really necessary to have some relationship with the wrathful mother, to have a relationship with uh, aspects of Shakti that are not uh, particularly always sweet and kind, that there are Kali and uh, Durga and other manifestations in Hinduism. Looking at your hair, I, <laughs> I think that... <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, the name Maharaji gave me, Ramdev, uh, for the longest time, I thought that was a Ram name. I had to be a Ram person. Uh, and Ram is the perfect son and the perfect husband and the perfect king. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to be perfect. What a burden. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of Maharaji's dear Indian devote, uh, devotees, Mr. Tiwari, came to America when I was running the dying center in Santa Fe. He came and stayed with us for a while. In fact, he was there for Shiva Ratri, and he did an all-night Shiva puja at the dying center in Santa Fe. And he said, no, no, Ramdev. Ramdev is the name of Shiva. Uh -huh. Ramdev means, means Ram's Lord. Ram worships Shiva, and Shiva worships Ram. So there was such relief that I could be I could be Shiva instead of be Ram. I could I could let my badness come out. It was probably a big mistake on my part to look at it in that way, but that was kind of what what I uh, I, I came to. And but the point I'm trying to make here is that the the destructive, the transformative aspect, whether we're talking about Shiva or Shiva's consort, the the darker aspects of Shakti. Uh, are qualities that we, we have a hard time working with in the West. And even if people have pictures of Shiva and Kali and Durga around, when difficult emotions arise, there's often this automatic feeling that I've got to fix this uh, and turn it into something more wholesome because that's separating me from God rather than that's also God. And I remember once we were with Maharaji and Kenshi and some Westerners were having a conversation about something and Dada came up to us and he said, you Westerners have it all wrong. You think that Maharaji is only the good stuff. In fact, he's everything. Maharaji is also these difficulties that you're talking about right now. He brings all of it to you. So that for me, and maybe for a lot of devotees, one way of looking at Tantra is that it's an ongoing relationship with the guru, that it's all guru's grace, and that even the difficult is a perfect pointing at what it is that's asking to be healed next. That it's not, it's not something that's uh, a, a roadblock or a detour, but it's exactly what consciousness is bringing forth in this moment that is leading us to what it is that we need to love and open to and embrace next. Yes. I think it's difficult to remove uh, 
the delusion, uh, let's say, because uh, sometimes when I meet difficulties, I get caught up uh, and it's difficult to see the face of the mother in the difficulties. <laughs> it, it requires a lot of practice, <laughs> I think. It takes... A lot of... Please. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, a lot of I think to stay in, the, in our center to see that these are only delusions. To stay inside, to feel connected with our inner center. But it's easy to be uh, pushed out. I don't know if I'm very clear. <laughs> no, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, it, it does take a lot of practice. I've been working with this meditation I came up with, my two-breath meditation, that is, is, a, is a tantric uh, meditation. It only takes two breaths to do what it is you were just talking about. And the two breaths, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, are up, down, in, out. Maybe you've heard me talk about this during our sessions together. So the first breath on the in-breath, you feel up, you feel your spine straight, straight and like God's pulling you up from the top of your head. And on the first out-breath, you drop down into your belly. You get centered, you get grounded, you become present. And uh, so the first out-breath is motivation. The first out-breath is getting centered, embodied. Uh, the second in-breath is breathing into your heart so that you can love even the difficult. You can love even this aspect of the mother. And the second out-breath is breathing out into infinite spaciousness in all, all directions, which is taking us into uh, just consciousness itself. So whenever I get caught, if I remember to do this two-breath meditation, boom, it just opens things up. And eventually you can, get, you can forget about the up-down, just go to the second breath, which is breathing into your heart and breathing out spaciousness, uh, into spaciousness, and... Yet, there are times when there isn't the faith to trust the spaciousness because what's going on right now in terms of health or money or relationship or work or whatever it is, is so challenging that it's difficult to love. It's difficult that we can, we can go into the heart in this particular moment. So uh, in the West, of course, the, the most popular part of Tantra is sexual Tantra. Yes. And uh, I guess that makes a lot of sense because people in the West are so physically preoccupied and so interested in peak experience and, and bodies and things like that. But uh, what, what sexual tantra is saying about sexuality is exactly what right now we're saying about using the mind or eating dinner or anything. It, it's Instead of getting caught in excitement in the experience, can all experience be tantric? Can all experience be uh, an expression of the divine? So in, in, in sexual tantra, instead of getting all excited and having a, a quick orgasm, the idea is you, you get so connected with the divine through the other person. You just rest in that openness and are, are in this uh, totally open orgasmic state for long, long periods of time. And I've had a similar experience that eating food or 
listening to music or being with another person in a totally non-sexual way. Uh, in fact, I think sexual tantra is probably kind of dangerous if you don't have a real foundation in yeah. some of the other things we've been talking about right now. I agree. Totally agree. That, that one of the things I love about Tantra is that it says that every moment can be an occasion for awakening. So even speaking with you in this moment or doing some prosaic activities, washing dishes, for example. And I think that, yes, the Tantra seen only as a sexual activities can be very dangerous because it could be misleading if you don't know the, the basis where it comes from, the, the, the philosophy. So could you any, say anything about how you bring Tantra into your yoga teaching? I try to make people... Um, well, I, I always do a, a small Dharma talk before we start. And then I try to make them feel through their body because Anuzara, it's like that. Uh, some of the qualities of the heart that we spoke about in the Dharma talk. So I try to make them feel uh, the philosophy, let's say, by their body. Because in Tantra we don't have a distinction uh, be between the body that is impure and <laughs> the spirituality, but the body is a tool for spirituality. Right. So we can use that. One of the things they say in Tantra is that the body is the microcosm of the universe, mm -hmm. that the whole universe is contained in, in the body. So if you have a certain relationship with the body, then you have that relationship with the whole, uh, all of reality. Yes. I, I, I found a beautiful phrase. I, I hope I don't quote it bad, but it's by Kabir. I think everybody knows that the drop is in the ocean, but few knows that the ocean is in the drop. And uh, I think that's <laughs> quite the same concept, uh, said poetically. Exactly. So a couple of practices that I've been doing to cultivate this tantric viewpoint. One is uh, appreciating that there is grace in each moment. That, that even when we're creating samskaras or working with samskaras, there is the possibility of digesting and devouring energy, uh, not getting caught uh, when we... So whether we're having a direct experience of something new or there's a samskara arising, is it possible that that can be fully digested, fully devoured? Uh, there's a wonderful poem by Ram Prasad Sen, Ramakrishna's favorite poet, where uh, he was a devotee of, of Kali. And it's a very long poem, but in the first few lines, which I'm going to paraphrase, he says something like, Oh, mother, in this life, either you are going to devour me or I am going to devour you, and I vow that uh, I will devour you. It is you that I will devour. So what I'm sure he means by this is that we're being devoured by the mother when we're lost in experience, when we're, we're uh, wrongly assuming that we're an egoic structure that is relating to a fixed external reality, and that we're devouring the mother when we're, we're present in this tantric way, when we're uh, realizing that whatever's arising 
is the manifestation of the sacred. We're devouring. And I just love that image of devouring reality, devouring the mother. So as we're doing that, then there's this feeling of grace that arises. And the second practice is working with being with experience just as it arises before concept uh, interfere. So can I look at you and instead of thinking... I'm looking at a screen, I'm doing a podcast, Elena is this person I know who's in Italy, who's shaking her head, that there's just this immediate thing going on, that you and I are looking into each other's eyes through this technology, and uh, it's so alive that it's uh, this this sense of grace is arising. And in fact, in Buddhism, uh, there's uh, a stage right before the first stage of enlightenment in Theravada Buddhism, uh, when one enters the stream of enlightenment. And the stage is you're very aware of how in each moment reality is being born. Mm. Uh, then there's another stage that, go, that comes after that, right before awakening, which is you're aware of how everything is dying which is a very frightening stage. It's called the rolling up the mat stage. You want to roll up your meditation mat and never meditate again because nothing is solid. Everything's gone as soon as you experience it. But at least can we get to that everything's being born stage so that there's there's no need to be grabbing onto concepts, to be categorizing or analyzing. And of course, having a PhD in mathematics I was trained to do the exact opposite of that, to analyze everything and to categorize and to figure it out, which is, is uh, in some ways, it's taught me a lot of compassion for scientists, but it's been a very difficult conditioning to go beyond, uh, to stop believing everything the mind thinks, to stop trusting the mind all the time. And particularly when things are really complicated or difficult or so that for me, being around dying people is a uh, wonderful practice because it forces me to let go of these concepts and be so intimately and nakedly and vividly with this other human being rather than, I mean, if I'm thinking here's a dying person or here's a cancer patient. I'm really not there with that person. And I, I've, if I'm looking at you and thinking, here's a female Italian person, just those notions are separating me from you in a certain way. Yes. I, I don't think that it's the PhD in mathematics anyway, because I've studied economics and I have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's too human. Most people I know... Make their living by making fine distinctions with the mind and categorizing things and doing that better than other people that don't have the same training that they do. So, whether you're a, a psychotherapist or a mathematician or an economist, or uh, even you can do that being a meditation teacher uh, at a certain level where you're able to categorize this kind of meditation and that kind of student and be putting things together. And this, this, this quality of Tantra really is about radical surrender into trusting the divine. And I feel so blessed that, that I have, uh, I've had this and have this living example of Maharaji in my life who 
has done that. I mean, it's one thing to read about it in the book, but it's another thing to be with somebody who's there moment to moment that fully. And Mayor Baba said that love is contagious. Those who haven't got it, catch it from those who do. So we can we can read about love, we can talk about love, but being around somebody who embodies that is the greatest gift in the world as far as I'm concerned. What I feel when I hear you speaking or uh, let's say Krishna Das singing or Ram Das speaking, I I can feel something in common. I can I can sense that you have been near to someone that had, had the, those, that quality that you've seen with your eyes. And uh, I think it's precious because you don't find this kind of energy everywhere. At the same time, there's the danger of other people feeling jealous. <laughs> and I would say that there are any number of younger devotees of Maharaji who were never there with him in his body and are just as close to him, at least as close as people that had to drag their bodies all the way over to India. And it might even be that the people who had to get their bodies all the way over to India were the more difficult, stubborn cases. <laughs> <laughs> and other people can get it comfortably at home, right? <laughs> 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 that they're not so stuck that they had to... I mean, going to India was really a, a, a task. I mean, I've been to India three times, and every time I've been there, I've had dysentery. I also got malaria. I got hepatitis. Uh, and yet, the the pilgrimage, of course, that's a whole other topic here, but uh, India is called Mother India, and here we're talking about Tantra, and Tantra is really, in some way, at least in Hindu Tantra, relationship with the mother. So you can go to India, and a lot of people have a very hard time there because they compare it to what it's like back home where it doesn't take eight hours to mail a package, or when you, you buy a train ticket, you know you've got a seat and the train's going to leave relatively on time. Those things don't happen in India, as you know. Uh, but... If you realize that the mother takes care of you, if you surrender to the mother, if you let yourself rest in the lap of the mother, then India is a very, very different experience. So like sometimes when I go to bed at night and I've had a long day and I, my head drops down on the pillow, I can think about all the things that have happened or I can, I can think that my head is in Maharaji's lap uh, rather than... Okay. Like you. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't it all his lap? Yes. Lucky you too. Uh, yes. <laughs> Lucky everybody. Everybody. So, do you have anything further you'd like to add? Um. No, I don't think so. Okay. Well. Uh, Thank you for being with me today. Uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. I appreciate it. And uh, sending you and everybody listening lots of love. Take care. Ram Ram. <laughs>